is Luke 6, 27 through 36. But those of you who are listening, I say, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies and do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful and just as your Father is merciful. Amen. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And it's always fun to get into the teaching of Jesus. Did Jesus really say that? That is the question we are asking this series. Did Jesus really say that? Of course, Jesus really said the words that we have recorded in Scripture. Our series is not one of literary criticism. Instead, this series is about hearing Jesus' words and accepting his call anew. Sometimes Jesus' words can seem rote and distant. 2,000 years of Christian history would do that. 2,000 years of history have created a haze around the sacred red-letter words of Jesus. For those who have grown up in church, 20 years or more of Sunday school attendance and devotional practice can blunt the impact of Jesus' teaching. They are like nursery rhymes, the words of nursery rhymes that we recite without knowing their meanings. Little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet, eating her curds and whey. Along came a spider who sat down beside her and frightened Miss Muffet away. What does this mean? Any guesses? Who knew that Miss Muffet represented Mary, Queen of Scots, or that the unpleasant spider represented Presbyterian reformer John Knox? Goosey, goosey gander. Well, that may be about religious persecution. Lucy Lockett is about 18th century prostitutes. Who knew? I didn't know until I did a little bit of research. Sometimes the words of Jesus are too familiar. So one of the tasks of this sermon series is to elucidate those words and bring clarity so that they move out of that distant and rote realm to one where we're seeing them fresh and new and they're close, close enough to get at us. Well, sometimes Jesus's teachings are hard to accept. I mean, isn't it a matter, it's not just a matter of biblical exposition, um, retrieving meaning that's been lost. Sometimes we just don't like it because it exposes us and it confronts us and it makes us uncomfortable. And we just don't like the idea of subjecting ourselves to that yoke. 
This was true even in Jesus's day. In, in John 6, on one occasion where Jesus's words divided the crowd. Well, after the, the sermon, Jesus's disciples took him aside and said, he gave him a little post-sermon feedback, said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? Well, we do that too sometimes. This teaching is hard to accept. It's not a matter of confusion. We don't need things explained. We just don't believe them. Or maybe we just don't want to live them out. When we ask, did Jesus really say that? Especially in this passage. I think we're getting at both things. It's a little too familiar, and it's a little too unsettling when we really hear the words. Perhaps there's nothing more nursery rhyme-esque than the golden rule, which is in our passage. It's become secularized. It's become popular in every ethical code, in every corner of society, in every business and trade. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. No passage in scripture, I believe, has, has been more blunted than the call to love our enemies. Love your enemies. I mean, my eyes kind of just gloss over when I hear those words. Many Christians write this off as idealistic. Although it's underlined in their Bible for a reason, and that is why we are returning to this. Did Jesus really say this? What is Jesus saying here? I think we should dig right in. Verse 27 starts off this way. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Okay, we'll pause there. Love your enemies. Now, now look with me actually after the paragraph break to verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. He seems to be saying something that's a little foreign to our ears. Um, love your enemies because that will be a credit to you. Because it will be going beyond the behavior of sinners. Even sinners love those who love them. That behavior is hardly worth writing about. But Jesus is preaching to those who are seeking to honor and to love God. He's preaching to Christians. And in a sense, he is engaging in a, 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 an ancient Jewish logic equation where he says, I mean, love those who love you, love those who hate you, I mean, he's saying love everyone. I mean, this, the, the message in this passage is one of unconditional love. Um, if you love those on two ends of a pole, you love everything in between as well. Love everyone. Hmm. I mean, that's an uncomfortable demand, right? Love everyone. I, I guess I just want you to let that sit with you for just a second love everyone including people that are hard to love including people that could be called your enemies i mean the the bible tends to use that term enemy to describe i mean at least three groups i mean the devil is called an enemy um enemies might denote those that persecute you or threaten you so unbelieving jews are often called uh, uh, enemies in scripture because they're hostile to the Christians um, and the message of the gospel. They're referred to as enemies. And lastly, the Bible calls out everyone, <laughs> you and me as enemies of God, at least initially, uh, before we came to trust God, Paul says that we were enemies of God. So in fact, 
love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Th those verses are actually, uh, those, those uh, two commands are actually linked. There's a link between them. And we get a little off track, I think, with do good to those who hate you, with that word hate. I mean, that is a strong word in our English language, but it's especially misleading because it, it connotes something that's in, in the realm of our affections, what, what, what we like, what we don't like, we, we're revulsed by. Revulsed by. We um, have very strong feelings towards. Well, well actually, in, a, in an honor-shame society, um, the way that love and hate are often used is, is to hate something is to disavow yourself of something, to not associate yourself with something, to say, this is not me. And that makes sense of righteous deeds and sin in scripture, right? So, so loving the good is an act in accordance with, um, with the good. And that's to say, this is me. And hating what is evil is to draw a line in the sand and not cross it. Um, do good to those who hate you. So that's do good to groups that persecute Christians. That's take up the welfare of those who would seek your martyrdom. That, that is kind of the sort of thing that this verse is saying. The Didache puts it this way, um, but for your part, love those who hate you and you will have no enemy. I mean, I've thought about that a little bit and you will have no enemy. I'm not sure I, I understand that fully. Um, but Jesus, Jesus does apply the same logic, right? That he applied to the first half of verse 27 to the second half as well. So if you read verse 33, he says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? It's the same logic equation, right? He, he says, if you want credit, go beyond what sinners do. Don't simply be a mirror, returning love and good to those who first loved you and did good to you. Your acts of love and goodness ought to be unconditional. Now, Jesus illustrates this principle, right, in, in verse 28. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. So he, he gives us two, two, uh, two words to apply this unconditional love. One is returning blessings for curses, and two is praying for people, right? Praying for your enemies. It may seem difficult, but it's a step. It's part of loving them. Um, we pray for our enemies. We're asking God to bless them, to protect them, to guide them. We're asking God to also cha challenge us and change our hearts so that we see them the way he sees them. Um, blessing is a public act as well. It means stepping out of our prayer closets. It's a blessing. not just to pray for a new family that has a baby in the home, but to give them meals, right? It's a blessing, um, not just to think nice thoughts about a, a, uh, a subordinate at work, but, but actually to use your position to, to really praise them and build them up and help influence their career. It's a blessing to find ways to make people's lives easier, to help someone after a loss, to, to, to be present when they feel weak or abandoned. I mean, this is, this is what it is to bless someone. It's not abstract. It's, um, it's real. I, I remember reading about the early settlers on Martha's Vineyard. So this is kind of mid-19th century. There was a high percentage of deaf people actually in Martha's Vineyard, um, one in 155. And that compares to the national average today of almost one in 6,000. So a very high percentage of deaf people. And now what happened is that, that those, well, well, let me just say first, I think that language is, is 
something that can be a barrier to participating in the community and community life, to having a gainful career, to making a difference. You know, I mean, what happened on Martha's Vineyard is that they actually adopted Martha's Vineyard sign language between the years of 1950 and, or 1850 and 1950. Um, that was taught in schools. That was part of the, the lingua franca, the, the, the lingua franca of the, of the island. Um, you know, there, there's something about that that is a blessing, right? There's something tangible about that of saying yes to a person, that we, we want to associate ourselves with you. Um, that, that's very true to the way that the Bible uses those terms, love and hate, right? To, to love someone is to say yes to them so that they're part of your family, your community. You are welcome in the heart of community. Um, Bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So our blessings and prayers ought to be unconditional as well. The next place Jesus illustrates this principle of unconditional love is in the area of relating to those who are socially superior to you. So that's in verse 29, right? So if somebody strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Now in, in Matthew's gospel, this saying is set in a wider context. It says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, I want to resist the temptation of conflating the two passages and seeing this and that as one and the same. I mean, turning the cheek is, is presented as an alternate to um, resisting in Matthew, to, to slapping back, <laughs> to uh, what, what could be called retributive justice, an eye for an eye. And Jesus offers a model of non-resistance in Matthew. But, but in its own terms, what does our verse say? It says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. I mean, nobody likes to get slapped. Uh, but as a rule, the slapper is, is, in this passage, is not presented as evil. Um, in ancient Israel, a, a, a backhanded slap is a way of admonishing inferiors. So a, a way of, of, of spanking, a little spanking in the ancient world. Um, it would have been very unwise to slap back, in other words, because you were at that person's mercy. Masters, backhanded slaves, husbands, wives, parents, children, men, women, Romans, Jews. It's from greater to lesser. That was the, the direction of this backhanded slap this admonishment, and it didn't work the other way around. Uh, there was a real power differential at play that reinforced this system. So without conflating our passage with Matthew's, you know, the clearest example of what this looks like is Jesus's own trial, Jesus's own crucifixion. Jesus doesn't assert his position. I mean, but he turns the other cheek again and again and again. It leads to his actual death his actual crucifixion. That is the eventual end of non-resistance in a corrupt justice system. Amplifying an injustice by turning the other cheek does not lead to the, the hearts of the unmerciful being changed. And still Jesus says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Now the second half of verse 29, it says, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. I mean, the same thing happened with Jesus, right? At his crucifixion, his garments were taken from him at the cross. 
In verse 30, it instructs us, give to everyone who asks you, and anyone, uh, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. You know, this language is universalizing, right? Give to everyone who asks. Um, let all thieves take what they want. I mean, recently we got a brochure in the mail with coupons as well as a number of good causes asking for donations. And what do you know, Lissy ripped it up before I could give to everyone who asked. It's Lissy's fault in this case, but every other time it is my fault. Um, but I, I want you to see that, that verse 34 applies the same logic, right? It's verse 32 and 33, verse 33. It says, if you lend to those from whom, whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. If you want credit, you have to go beyond what sinners do, Jesus says. Um, be a giver, not a lender. Bear in mind, um, based on the, the blessings and woes of this passage, I mean, most of this, the, this, these people are, are very poor. Um, you know, this sermon is, is going to get long, but I, I'm going to do this illustration anyway, just because I think it's important. Um, I learned a really important lesson in seminary. I was enrolled in a scholarship that uh, required ongoing donations from a number of uh, churches, ministry partners, people that were, were really saying, yes, we want you to go into ministry and we want you to do that with the least amount of baggage <laughs> possible uh, when, you, when you go there in terms of debt. I mean, I grew up in a church that jumped on this opportunity to give to me, but they also didn't have a lot of money. Um, and, and some of the people that agreed to support me supported me at $5 a month. And some people gave me like a $10 bill and said, I'm going to pray for you every day. Um, in a sense, that was asking a lot from them. Um, and, and, you know, I think that it was very humbling to be on the receiving end of that gift. Um, and so I, I've actually made it a point to go back to that church and to, to preach. And, and, you know, what happens when you accept gifts like this is relationship happens. And I think that that's really at the core and the heart of this passage, right, is it's, it's about relationship, right? If you love people, that's what happens. You form relationships, um, and you get involved in people's lives, and you have to be grateful because actually they gave something of themselves to you, and it was costly. Um, there was something really humbling about that, which I am still unpacking in my own life. Now, verse 31 uh, is the golden rule. Um, Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip, and you'll just have to believe me that basically every culture and every religion has a version of this. A lot of them are said in the negative, as in don't do what you would hate uh, your neighbor to do to you. Jesus is said in the, the, the positive. Um, you know, he says, he says it, um, right? He illustrates it in the last two verses, right? Verses 35 and 36. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. There's three proactive, rather than reactive, illustrations of this principle of unconditional neighborly love, which is what this passage is about. It's about the law of love in action. Um, the exchange appears to be acts of goodwill and selfless exchange for a big reward and status as children of God because we have acted this way mercifully to the ungrateful. And maybe I could leave it there. Maybe I could just say that and we all go home striving for moral perfection. We can all do selfless acts of love to our undeserved neighbors, undeserving neighbors. Maybe the point is that when we love our neighbors, 
You know, the ruin of the fall, which has created trial and woe, will, will be mended and the rift will be healed and the world will be restored. And maybe that's the point of this all. I mean, I think that actually that is kind of part of the way that Jews think about the world. Tikkun olam means to heal the world. That's to engage in acts that lead to the mending of creation. I mean, maybe the point is that we need to organize our lives around this credit system that this passage seems to be espousing. Verses 20, 32, 33, and 34, they all talk about doing things for credit, right? What credit is that to you? What credit is credit? So, so maybe there's a credit system that we have to build into our imaginations. And this great reward, don't forget about the great reward that comes in verse 35. If I didn't know any better, it would seem as though Jesus has never read Paul, right? Salvation by grace through faith. Jesus instructs us to go beyond fulfilling the law, but, but he didn't read Paul. Paul says we can't even fulfill the law. So how can we go beyond fulfilling the law when we can't even fulfill it in the first place? We can't even obey it. It would seem as though Jesus had, has never read Luther, uh, sola gratia, by grace alone. It would seem as though Jesus is painting a picture of moral perfectionism, which is fueled by these feelings of self-righteousness, right? I'm better than the sinner. I'm better than those that just do things because other people do them to them. They, they, do, do, do good only to those who do good to them, to, who love only those who love them. I mean, should we be fueled by this sense of self-righteousness? You know, if you were surprised that Jesus said, love your enemies, I mean, are you not surprised as well that Jesus seems to be operating under this different system of, of what, what it is to, uh, to exist before God? Um, Jesus is not a very good Christian, it would seem. But before I set out to resolve this snare that I've laid out for us, let me just say that I'm not the first person who has tried to sort through this, what is Jesus saying here question. I mean, a, a lot of majorities, a, a, lot, a majority of approaches, a lot of those approaches throughout Christian history have been to lessen the impact of these words, right? Thomas Aquinas, he divided Jesus's teachings into precepts and counsels. And, and if we are going to translate that into modern English, we'll call those the requirements and the suggestions, right? The, the, the precepts, the requirements are like the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. However, according to Aquinas, a lot of things in this passage are, are really counsel, good models to strive to fulfill, although they don't have the moral force of precepts, and therefore they can't condemn a person if they fail to obey them. And they can't, but, but, they, but they can at least in his schema, justify non-salvific rewards. So, so extra stuff in heaven. That might not be actually true. Um, but the Roman Catholic Church followed Aquinas' distinction. And, and so they have now a distinction between mortal sins and venial sins. It, it all flows out of Aquinas trying to work through and ultimately lessen the impact of Jesus' words in this passage. Another approach is to say that Jesus' teaching no longer applies. About 150 years ago, there was the, 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 the reign of the theology of dispensationalism, right? Which explained the radical teachings of Jesus as, as the last vestige of the age of the law, after which it would be displaced by the age of grace after Jesus' death and resurrection. The Schofield Bible describes this sermon as pure law 
with beautiful moral application to the Christian, though only applicable for a few years until Jesus died. And now this is part of a, a former era, a former dispensation. You know, both of these approaches, right, Aquinas's approach, the, uh, the, the Darby approach, these are mistaken in their assumption that, that Jesus is teaching in this passage how to get to heaven, right? If that were the case, it would be really hard to fit this with the teaching of Paul. Um, I don't think he is. We can't use this as a basis to lessen the impact of these words, which I think we've, we've done in Christian history. If you look at commentaries, there is a lessening of these words. So how does it fit? Paul insisted that we're justified by faith, not by works. But Jesus taught a lot about works. He taught a lot about how to live, how to, how to go about your life. And wouldn't this make you believe that, that you could just be good enough for God? Well, well, no, I think it's vital as Christians to understand that Paul is an entry point, right? <laughs> He's an evangelist. He's telling people what to do coming through the door, right? Jesus is a, a discipler. He is somebody that is training people that are already in the door, telling them what to do to work out that seed of faith that has been planted in them. Jesus wasn't telling people how to get into the heaven, but he's helping them to discern what to do after you believe. I mean, it's written to Christians. It's helping them to know how to live and how to respond to grace. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom breaking in. Well, if the future has broken in, well, then you can practice things here, now, right now. You can form those habits and learn those lessons which will be good into eternity. You know, it's also important that the Holy Spirit's an equation in all this, right? That, that even though we'd like to think that if everyone just obeyed Jesus' teachings, it would create a pacifistic utopia of do-gooders, but, but it's the Holy Spirit that, that allows us to, to even partially have, have a stab at this thing called unconditional love of neighbors. You know, if we had a changed heart, a fully changed heart, which we will, we would fulfill this law of love to our neighbors. Let's not lessen the impact of Jesus' words to say they're something different than they really are. Like, let's let the full weight of it just really hit us. Jesus says, love your neighbors unconditionally, even the people that are hard to love. The point in this is not to filter Jesus's words through what we think we're capable of, but, but let his words shine on us and expose us, right? Expose our hearts. When we look at this plain description of, of what it means to love our neighbor, unconditional love of neighbor, I mean, do we pass mustard? Do you? Are we fulfilling these requirements of the law or not? I think as Christians, we can get nervous when we're talking about the moral law. Nervous that we're entering into the domain of what we could call legalism, trying to uh, find our ability to stand before God on our own, on our own works. I mean, but these words aren't a mistake. As Christians, we're not justified by our works. We're justified by grace through Christ. It was, it was because Jesus had perfect love that he was able to love his enemies, right? Even as they marched him to death row as a convicted, so-called convicted criminal. That's what we needed. 
because we cannot fulfill the law on our own. It's because of Jesus's love for neighbor that he turned the other cheek again and again and again. He surrendered his cloak. He gave his own life with no expectation of return on his investment. Jesus, his life is the best lens from which we can evaluate this teaching because he did all these things. And we can see the righteous standard that he set forth, that he carried out to the letter of the law. He did it because we couldn't. He did it because of love, an unconditional love for you and me, for us when we were still enemies of God, intent on living our life for our own gain. And the question is, if this is true, which it is, well, now what? I mean, one of the great claims of the New Testament is that we can love only because God loves us. He loved us first. It's only because God first showed his unconditional love for us that we can now extend that love to others. It's only because of God's mercy, right, which is the conclusion of this passage, that we can extend mercy to others. If you and I truly believe this, and I hope that we do, the natural over outflow of this is to start to live life out of this security with unconditional love to our neighbors, even neighbors that hurt us, even neighbors that intend to embarrass us or discredit us or show us to be foolish or to use us for, to advance their own agendas. No, we're never going to get it perfect, but yes, Jesus really did say this. And he really did mean this. And so let's not blunt the end of it. He didn't just say it to highlight our need for him, although it certainly does that. He said it to show us what life looks like in the kingdom, where, where love works to create relationships that function, <laughs> that function well. If there is a neighbor that you think it's impossible to love, I challenge you now to submit that relationship to Christ. If you need help to navigate what, what love looks like in a relationship, I, I, I bid you to pray about it. This passage bids you to pray about it. Pray for that person. If you're unsure what it means to do good or how to give wisely, or if you are in fact exposed to conditions where you might have to turn the other cheek, I invite you to use the moment as we close in prayer to seek God who promises to give wisdom. Yes, Jesus said that. Yes, love your neighbor. Yes, it's unconditional. That's in his mercy, love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you love us unconditionally, that you model what it is to be a disciple. Um, and I pray that you would use our lives to create relationships that, that are glimpses of, of your, intended, uh, your intended life of, of people submitted to God in your kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would hear you anew because your words are as relevant as ever. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.